I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, listeners. A huge thank you to the Ravinia Festival in Highland Park, Illinois, for helping to make this interview possible. Don't miss Jeremy Dank performing with the Chicago Symphony at Ravinia on July 28th. Get your tickets now to the live performance at ravinia.org. In addition to being one of America's foremost pianists, a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, and Avery Fisher Prize winner, Jeremy Dank is also a New York Times best-selling author. His memoir recounts a musical life starting as a precocious prodigy who, among other things, just wanted to introduce his friends to classical music on the school bus. I thought it was unfair that I had to listen to popular music all the time on the bus, but it didn't last long because... You know, they all clawed at me and then they grabbed, they turned it off. But I'd learned my lesson not to try to fight anyone by them because I, I was not gifted in that area. <laughs> You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. My wife is always reading, and I come home uh, a few months ago to find her reading your book. Aww. She loved it and suggested I read it, and when I asked what it was about, she said, it's a great memoir, and I said, oh, about who? She said, well, it's, it's about a musician, and I said, no thanks. <laughs> As a musician, I know how hard it is to, you know, watch content about music. So, yeah, and I appreciate the, the obstacles, the mental obstacles to reading a music memoir, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but then I read it, and it, she was right. It's a beautiful book, and you're an amazing writer. Throughout the book, you document your life as a student of music and even of science, but you don't talk about writing all that much. When did you realize that you had a talent for writing? Um, there is a little bit about my English classes, but you're right. There's not much else about writing, and there's probably slightly not enough mention of the fact that I was reading voraciously all that time, you know, constantly um, out in the quad at Oberlin, you know, trying to escape from everyone and everything, reading whatever. 
Joyce, Homer, you know, Virginia Woolf, whatever, whatever I could get my hands on. But I didn't really start writing seriously until after the action of the book is more or less. All right. So that part of my life doesn't really register in this particular story, which goes from age five to 26. Right. While you were writing the book, how did that fit into your concert and practice schedule? It didn't fit very well, certainly at first. And I, you know, I, I procrastinated on this book for so long. My editor is a saint for having put up with me. Um, but I found it very difficult when I was trying to do stressful concerts to think about these very vulnerable moments when I was a kid, you know, when the, my, my piano teacher yelling at me and all this, you know, the, the, the little failures and, and stresses and backstage stresses. I, I couldn't do it. You know, I wrote let's say maybe a third to a half of the book in fits and starts over many years while I was touring, mostly on vacations or breaks. And then when COVID came, I had uninterrupted time. And then I really was able to do it and access the memories too that, that were lurking back there. One of the things I really enjoy about your writing is that you have this clear and concise way of explaining what makes a piece of music special or beautiful. Do you think this ability comes from the influence of your father, who was a computer engineer? <laughs> well, I definitely had some science, yeah, genetics, right? And science, I had very much uh, science and math nerd elements growing up. And I was, I could have in another life just been a mathematician, I think, you know, and maybe, maybe a very happy one. So maybe you're right. I do that part of me, which I'm kind of abandoned. I abandoned chemistry after undergraduate school. It still functions in the way that I pick apart pieces. And then I hopefully, hopefully like the English classes also register, you know, they sort of meet the science in a certain way that analysis plus the metaphor that makes the analysis come alive. If the, when I feel the book is most successful in those ways, it's very, it makes me very happy because to get a piece of a moment of music down in words is so hard to do concisely and or humorously or in a way that, you know, isn't like a total snooze fest. And, and, and those passages that are the ones I worked the hardest on. When you were younger, you moved around a lot because your dad's job. And we're not talking about like a move from Jersey to Manhattan. These are big moves. You're moving to different climates. Did your study of music and practicing piano, did that help you start over in these new places? Did it provide uh, through line for you in those early years? It probably did. Uh, moving was certainly not the biggest trauma <laughs> of, you know, of, my, of my childhood, which was not, I mean, it had its problems. It was not particularly traumatic, but you know, my mom especially was suffering from alcoholism, which only became clear to us uh, over time. Um, it's true, the piano is my therapy, right? Which I, I probably should have been in actual therapy, <laughs> but the piano served as, as my escape and refuge. And, and of course, very powerfully, it was basically my identity from like at age eight or nine, right? In the book, I talk about how I realized that quitting the piano lessons was like the saddest thing I could possibly imagine. Right. Whereas my brother was like, oh, I could quit piano lessons. It's, you know, right. it's fun to make music, but I could also very happily quit, you know, but for me, it was already like really intensely. So I'm not sure. Yes, it was a through line, but it was also a dependency. Mm. 
And it wasn't long after you settled in New Mexico that your parents found you a piano teacher. He had a Bosendorfer piano. Now, these pianos have more than 88 keys, right? They're huge. As a kid, seeing that piano, it must have blown you away. Did you actually get a chance to play it? Most of my lessons for a few years were on that Bosendorfer because we didn't like to go to the college that much. Um, so I went to his house and he had that thing. I mean, it was awe-inspiring, kind of intimidating. But, you know, I think as a child, I you, you just sat down and once I started playing, I sort of forgot that it was, you know, here was this amazing looking piano. It was just shinier. Hmm. Uh, our piano at home was this ridiculous graffiti covered old piano that my dad rescued from a burlesque house in, in Atlantic City. So it definitely felt like a more adult situation. Like I suddenly had to step up this shiny, polished instrument. How does your dad rescue a piano from a burlesque house? Well, he was put in touch with a piano technician and he said, oh, this burlesque house is dumping their piano and I can rebuild it for you for this ridiculously small amount of money, which they didn't have much money because both my parents had just kind of basically restarted their lives. So for a thousand bucks, they got that piano from the burlesque house that was rebuilt. I, I could only imagine what that piano has seen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't know at my... At that age, what a burlesque house was. My dad said it was like the Muppet Show, uh, and my mom <laughs> like you know, giggled a little bit. Um, so it was only later I understood the comedy of all that thing, and it was pretty hideous too. I mean, it was terrible to look at in the living room, which was the only place we had for it at first. So, so the, the first piece of music that grabbed you and shook up your world when you were a kid was Mozart's Symphonia Concertante. Now, it's a great piece but it would take me as an adult repetitive listening and study of the score to get as obsessed with it as you did on your first hearing when you were just 12 years old. What was it about that particular piece that made such an indelible impression right away? You know, it wasn't the whole piece, of course. I wasn't any kind of genius listener. You know, I loved music. I was an, I was an attentive listener. Sometimes Mozart bored me like, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, this is just Mozart being Mozart. But it was that particular place near the beginning where the trills take over in the orchestra. And you have the feeling, you know, first that there's this slightly, oh, why is this still going on? What's happening? You know, why is the piece suddenly? And then you're kind of, you're, you're, you're in kind of a state of shock. And then it kind of morphs into elation as you realize that Mozart's created this incredible bubble. And you feel like you're within you, you know, there's this kind of, vibrating energy of the music that you, you it's almost more than you can take right and i remember sitting there and hearing it for the first time you know the bemusement turning into awe and totally taken by this moment. and then the most amazing is when it crests you know this amazing thrilling climax and then it kind of melts and i remember i mean it, you know i didn't know how to explain i didn't know what it was why it stuck out then it was so it was such a joy for me when I wrote that chapter of the book, which was actually the first thing I wrote in COVID. Well, it's clear that that piece ignited your passion for classical music, which would fill your life with a lot of amazing things, but in the short term would get you beat up on a school bus. You blasted classical music on a boombox on your school bus because you thought everybody would like it. What were you thinking? You know, uh, what I was thinking. I thought it was unfair that I had to listen to popular music all the time on the bus and was constantly subjected to this 
you know, music that I didn't particularly have any love for. And I d it deserved to have one day where I played the music that I actually enjoyed, right? Rather than having to listen to all this other stuff. So it was like a high moral dungeon uh, combined with a kind of stupidity and probably a little bit of like twerpy elitism or something, you know. Just but it's like brave too. I guess it was a kind of, there's like, I think that the meeting point of deeply clueless and idiotic and brave, maybe you could find a little Venn diagram intersection there, but that that's, you know. So I strapped my tape player into my, my backpack. I mean, it was sort of a stealth maneuver too, because I hid my tape player in the backpack to seem like I didn't have anything. But it didn't last long because, you know, they all clawed at me and then they grabbed, they turned it off. and I think they, they took away the tape so that I couldn't play it generally made fun of me. But I'd learned my lesson not to try to fight anyone by then because I, I was not gifted in that area. <laughs> well, I'm sure glad that you weren't hurt or threw any punches because at the least of which it would have affected your piano practice if, you're, if you had hurt your hand. When you were practicing, at what point did you find yourself taking ownership? Like at the beginning, you were excited about getting a star in your black and white composition notebook from your teacher. But when was that reward system replaced with a drive that was self-motivated? Yeah, that's tough. I think it took me a long time because um, I had, for better or for worse, I could learn pieces quickly. And I had a sort of a native ability to digest a piece. And then, then I was like, oh, what do I do next? Yeah. And it still sounded pretty bad, but you know what I mean? I, I could get through it in a way that was presentable enough. Um, so I, I remember there was a lot of time, and I don't... Occasionally when my teacher, my high school teacher, when he would really get at me, I would practice with intention by sheer force. Like he would force me to think about one thing for a week or another, you know, and bit by bit for a few weeks, we'd get the piece into something like, you know, like really intentional practice. But then when I went to Oberlin and I had much looser supervision, you know, uh, that all fell apart. And I was playing every piece ever written, you know, and I was having a great time and learning all these things. So it wasn't really until grad school that I, that I really feel I began to practice for the love of practice. Hmm. It's clear that you had a musical intelligence and curiosity from a very early age and that you just needed to practice to build your technique when did you feel that practice start to pay off and you could execute the things that were in your head? I think I was even 11 or 12 and I was playing a Mozart sonata, you know, not one of the really difficult ones either. And, and Bill had been getting after me about it, you know, for a little while about evenness and rhythmic things. And we'd been doing some Dohnani exercises about finger independence. And somehow in the fusion of those two things, I, I was playing this little 16th note passage in Mozart and, it suddenly felt easy and like the notes, like each release led you to the next notes. And this kind of, kind of almost somersaulting of the fingers one after the other. It had this joyous, as you say, kind of a unity of the idea and the, and, and the movement. But it was also a little bit like I was possessed by someone I didn't recognize, you know? Like my fingers were doing it and I was like, oh God, this is kind of a, like... Like you imagine Buffy the Vampire Slayer is or whatever, when they suddenly realize they have these supernatural powers. So like, here was this glimpse. Oh, yes, I can play an incredibly light and beautiful and graceful uh, virtuoso passage in Mozart. This is, this is amazing. Let's just do more of that. Um, so that was probably the first time. But then, you know, the, those, those moments were kind of rare-ish for a long time. 
you've written in great detail about the relationships you've had with your teachers throughout your life. But in your very last piano lesson at Juilliard, instead of leaving you with words of wisdom, your teacher told you that there were already so many great pianists out there in the world and it's going to be really tough for you. How discouraging was that to hear when you're about to leave the safe haven of school and face the real world? It was pretty rough. You know, I, I remember that moment vividly. And it was kind of a defining leaving home message. Right? I, you know, Bill, that teacher, and my parents were more or less of the same generation. And there was a kind of nurturing without nurturing vibe there. Like, like don't. Don't be too encouraging, you know, make sure you balance praise with, you know, other things. And so they were like that, all of them. And it's not the worst strategy in the world, but there was, that one was really ill-chosen. Yeah. Because I, but luckily I was so like full of my own whatever possibility that I just went off. In a way, screw you, right? Well, it worked because you landed a job teaching at Indiana University at what, 25 years old? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. And after that first year of teaching, you had a party for all of your students and they surprised you with this present. And as you unwrapped it, you revealed this Costco size of tissues for when you made your students cry. Did you know that you were that hard on your students at the time? I think it's fair to say the book reveals someone who's not in perfect command of their emotional intelligence at all, at all times. <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm somewhat improved now, but, you know, I was a brash kid. I was full of myself in some ways and deeply insecure in other ways. And those two things rebounded off of each other. And I, when I was teaching, I just was extremely opinionated. And, you know, I hadn't had enough experience to know that pieces are hard. Therefore, the students struggling with this, but I wasn't trying to diagnose and try to get within them. You know, I didn't have any of those skills. So, and the reason I put that in the book is, I mean, it was an amazing moment and, and it was an amazing, and it did make me realize that I was inflicting the legacy of my own traumas on the next generation and, and what kind of crappy things that do. So I guess in the same way, we can't really escape becoming elements of our parents. Can you escape becoming the teachers that shaped you musically? Yeah. I've, you know, writing the book made me sort of see myself as a like a pie made up of these various ingredients of the past, you know, or whatever. In a weird way, also, there are these curious correspondences between the aspects of my teachers and the aspects of my parents. Like my dad was this weird amalgam of, you know, he was a monk for 10 years. So he had that sort of cloistered, philosopher feeling. He was a scientist, right? And he loved to act. Right? He was a real ham. He did all this theater later in life. He was desperately wanting to be an actor. And no, so for example, Norman was a little bit more of the, you know, the actor, right? The, the ham up everything. Find the, the Laurence Olivier or whatever of your Beethoven. Um, and then Shevok was more the philosopher, right? my dad on the yeah. And and those two teachers were like the two sides of my father that I you know, and as much as I had talked troubles with my father and so much like those you know, side that I see those things in my playing a lot. An attempt to find a way to 
make those personalities speak together. I mean, there's lots of times in music you want to be a philosopher, and there's lots of times you want to be an actor. You know, you kind of want to switch as a performer from 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 one thing to another. So all those teachers, it's terrible to say this, almost like reconstructing my father out of various teachers. It's a really screwed up Freudian process if you think about it, yeah. When you teach now, I'm sure you treat all of your students as individuals, but is there a common theme that you try to get across to every single one of them? There are some recurring things that I love to talk about with students, you know, that I try to encourage as values. Like, I often talk to them about what Shebuck used to talk about, which was up and down, like in a phrase, where's the up and where's the down? And if you figure out how the gravity operates in the phrase of music, suddenly everything becomes easier and more natural and you can speak with, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to keep trying. The music is, is happening, right? Uh, almost without, without trying. That's one thing. Um, there's another thing that, you know, Miriam Freed, who's an amazing teacher, who also didn't end up in the book, which is a terrible omission. She, she was an amazing um, she she had an amazing thing that she said to Ravinia. It's like every time you repeat something when you practice, don't play it again until you explain to yourself physically what you're going to do differently next time to make it better. Like be specific. You know, am I going to lift my finger more? Am I going to slow down my thumb? Or am I going to whatever it is? Right. You you, you make a decision, and maybe it will work, and maybe it won't work, and you know, for various reasons. But then you're doing something. And I often talk to my students about that because um, that's the kind of intentional practicing that I didn't have as, as a kid that much, which, which I don't want them to waste their time. And yeah. I want their practicing to be happier, you know, that, and weirdly that anal retentive process for me makes practicing much better because you're constantly making little changes, right? And you're not just dro- uh, roading in, you know, drudgery, whatever. Well, it's been great talking with you, and thank you so much for your time. But before you go, can I tell you my favorite part of your book? Oh, that's very sweet. Okay, let's hear it. All right. So among all the beautifully written passages that are vivid and touching and poignant, the part where you describe the stale, disgusting air in the practice rooms of the fourth floor at Juilliard is so spot on that I think you deserve a second MacArthur Genius Prize for it. (laughs) I really let fly about Juilliard. It's hard to think of a music school that would be less inspiring to be in as a piece of architecture. Well, reading your memoir really brought me back to breathing that air. How did you describe it? Stale? It's stale among many other things. I forget the exact phrase from the book. about. I mean, it's air that has been breathed by hundreds of other anxious practicing musicians for like days and days and days. And everyone was just inhabiting these same you know, amoeba-ridden spaces. Yeah. I think, and the, the keys were always greasy. That's the most, for me, the most disgusting part of every piano is just like, is it this film, like, like we were all like aliens secreting like little bits of ourselves onto the keys. That's vivid. <laughs> I'm glad I put it all back for you. That's, that's really nice to hear. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. 
Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly 